Good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms. Thank you. Motherhood is a very sacred responsibility. It hasn't necessarily been revered in our culture the way it should be. But it is holy and significant, so we definitely honor all the moms today, and but not just today, every day. When I asked the Lord what he would have me share today, his exact words were, I want you to herald my dream. So God had a dream in his heart when he created us and he created the world, and he's never given that up. It's just alive and well today, just as it always has. And he knew everything that would happen. He knew that his creation would turn against him meaning um, Satan and his angels, and that they would lead the world into darkness. And he knew the great cost to himself that that would incur, and he still went ahead with all of his plans. It's amazing. And those who are walking by faith and not sight right now see that everything is being dismantled, right, that has been in place, and... We also know he's raising up a whole new kingdom. We're just talking about that in the ladies' class. So we're just going to take a breather this morning. Just take a break. Forget about the news. Forget about everything going on out there. And I want us to spend some time looking at what God's dream is for us. Okay? For several years now, I have these recurring dreams at night. And... Always the dream is the same thing, but it just looks different every time. And in the dream, it opens up with Jeff and I have just bought a house. We've just settled on a house, and we've signed the papers, and we're just walking into the house for the first time to see it. Because, I don't know, in the dream, for some reason, we haven't seen it yet. And in every dream, the house is a disaster in some way. It's either really old And there's, you know, thick dust and cobwebs and, you know, just a disaster. Or like in the most recent house, uh, the people that had moved out painted every wall a different neon color. And the, the, the wood floors were so buckled, they were like waves. And so we're just looking at this going, yeah, we're going to have to go down to the foundation on this one. And uh, sometimes they have weird features. Like I remember in one, you know, dreams are weird. So there was this, where a kitchen sink was supposed to be, there's this flat countertop with just a single little drain hole, like a faucet with a drain hole on a flat countertop. And I'm thinking, this is not functional. Like how did they even do anything with this? And, but what's funny is that in every dream, we are completely excited. We, we, are unfazed about what needs to be done. We don't see that. All we see is the potential. All we see is what it's going to be when we, you know, tear it all down and redo it. And it's like, to us, it's no problem. All we have is excitement about it. Now, in real life, we would never do this. We like uh, new building projects, but we're not the fixer-upper types. We would never do this. (laughs) So I knew these dreams were not literal from the Lord. And, but, you know, I was like, okay, What's this about, you know? After a whole bunch of them, I, I understood from the Lord that what he was talking about was, were, were about paradigms that needed to be torn down and rebuilt and renovated into the right way to think so that things can prosper again and new life can happen again. And it's what 
the Lord called Jeremiah to do in Jeremiah 1.10, where he called Jeremiah as a prophet. And he said, today I appoint you to stand up against nations and kingdoms. And some you must uproot and tear down, destroy and overthrow. Others you must build up and plant. So to just say it plainly, God's dream is complete retroactive restoration of everything from its foundation to be reconstructed, okay? We know, we've talked about it a lot, we know the Father's original intent was lost in Eden, and everything that was raised up after that has been in opposition to his will. So every aspect of life has to be remade. Not one can stand. So that means everything, governments, health practices, banking, You know, even the way we think of family life, a lot of the things, the way things are done in churches, um, they have all operated in opposition to what God's plan was. So the renovation that God is bringing is a colossal disruption in every way of thinking that mankind settled into. Okay, and even just saying it that way, it's like a huge understatement because No words convey the depth that with human beings have been educated to believe the exact opposite of what the Lord wanted for us, okay? So this type of uprooting and tearing down and overthrowing has to happen in the mind first. It is the being transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can know the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And the foundation of everything now will be relationship with him, which is what he meant it to be in the beginning. And what is being destroyed is everything constructed with man's wisdom and man's propulsion, right? So I want to just start with us reading together a few passages that describe the dreams of God for his children. There are so many. It was hard to narrow it down. But as I read these, like, just breathe. Try to feel them, okay? We're going to start with Deuteronomy 28. This is where Moses was talking to the children of Israel, actually presenting God's dream to the children of Israel. We're going to start with verse 1. If you fully obey the Lord your God and keep carefully all his commands that I am giving you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the world. You will experience all these blessings if you obey the Lord your God. Your towns and your fields will be blessed. Your children and your crops will be blessed. The offspring of your herds and flocks will be blessed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be blessed. Wherever you go and whatever you do, you will be blessed. The Lord will conquer your enemies when they attack you. They will attack you from one direction, but they will scatter from you in seven. The Lord will guarantee a blessing on everything you do and will fill your storehouses with grain. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he is giving you. If you obey the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, the Lord will establish you as his holy people as he swore he would do. Then all the nations in the world will see that you are a people claimed by the Lord and they will stand in awe of you. The Lord will give you prosperity in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, blessing you with many children, numerous livestock, and abundant crops. 
The Lord will send rain at the proper time from his rich treasury in the heavens and will bless all the work that you do. You will lend to many nations, but you will never need to borrow from them. If you listen to these commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today, and if you carefully obey them, the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you will always be on top and never at the bottom. Next, I want to read a few verses from Isaiah 65. We're going to start in verse 17. Look, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth, and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. Uh, Skipping to verse 20. No longer will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they have lived a full life. No longer will people be considered old at 100. Only the cursed will die that young. In those days, people will live in the houses they built and eat of the fruit of their own vineyards. Unlike the past, invaders will not take their houses and confiscate their vineyards. For my people will live as long as trees, and my chosen ones will have time to enjoy their hard-won gains. They will not work in vain, and their children will not be doomed to misfortune. That one gets me every time. For they are a people blessed by the Lord, and their children, too, will be blessed. I will answer them before they even call to me. While they are still talking about their needs, I will go ahead and answer their prayers. Love that. Okay, one more passage. Ezekiel 47, starting in verse 1. This is the vision Ezekiel had of the river river of life flowing from the temple. In my vision, the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple. There I saw a stream flowing east from beneath the door of the temple and passing to the right of the altar on its south side. The man brought me outside the wall through the north gateway and led me around to the eastern entrance. There I could see the water flowing out through the south side of the east gateway. Measuring as he went, he took me along the stream for 1,750 feet. The New Living Translation puts it in feet. And then led me across. The water was up to my ankles. He measured off another 1,750 feet and led me across again. This time the water was up to my knees. After another 1,750 feet, it was up to my waist. Then he measured another 1,750 feet and the river was too deep to walk across. It was deep enough to swim in, but too deep to walk through. He asked me, have you been watching, son of man? Then he led me back along the riverbank. When I returned, I was surprised by the sight of many trees growing on both sides of the river. Then he said to me, this river flows east through the desert into the valley of the Dead Sea. The waters of this stream will make the salty waters of the Dead Sea fresh and pure. There will be swarms of living things wherever the water of this river flows. Fish will abound in the Dead Sea for its waters will become fresh. Life will flourish wherever this water flows. And verse 12, fruit trees of all kinds will grow along both sides of the river. The leaves of these trees will never turn brown and fall, and there will always be fruit on their branches. There will be a new crop every month, for they are watered by the river flowing from the temple. The fruit will be for food and the leaves for healing. These are just a few of the father's dreams. 
for man described in the Bible. There are more. Isaiah 61 is also a good one. Um, Revelation 22, if you want to look at those later. But as we move into this time, he will be giving Revelation piece by piece as we need it on how to partner with him and see these things come to be what they were supposed to be all along. So I want to talk about big picture categories. Okay, you could call them um, like five foundational paradigm shifts that we need to make to be ready for this. And try not to think of these as points in a message, but as ways of thinking on the earth that need to change, okay? Because it's one thing to kind of know something in your head as information. It's a whole different thing to make the adjustment into living differently because your thinking changes, right? So the first one is, in the kingdom, resources are abundant, not scarce. Okay, we're just thinking about this. And I'm not really sure how to convey this because most of us know the God who created everything is an abundant God. We we all know that. But what I'm talking about is a mindset we have to forsake and leave behind of the thinking of living in limits. The whole principle with this is he meant for us to live a completely burden-free life, an abundant life. Not, Not a life that is free of responsibility, not, um, not a life that is free of a weight of calling, like productive for the Lord's kingdom, but not because of effort. The productiveness for the kingdom occurs as we follow his voice and lead. Nothing else. So when we think of resources, there's only one thing to do with our money. And money is just one resource. There's only one thing to do with it, and all the other things will work out. And that is be a channel for it to flow in and out of us according to his voice. There's only one thing to do with our time. And all the other things will work out. And that is we abide with him and we use our time according to his voice. It is that simple. And I'm not saying we don't schedule things. I'm saying we hold on to every resource loosely in in the posture of, You know, we make our plans, but the Lord directs our steps. And when we do that, we live free of striving. We live free of toil. We live free from the fear of of lack. Yeah, the fear of lack of supply. So at the curse of sin, we know everything changed about resources because they diminished. And then everything became about toil and effort. And so then, then man had to work with limited amounts of resources. And everything changed about time as well. Uh, there would be now aging and there would be decay. And so these resources would have to be managed because now they were limited. But in the kingdom, personal energy is unlimited. Time is unlimited. Like if you haven't noticed... God is about the long game. He, he does nothing with short-term gain in mind. He does everything with long-term purpose in mind. And so he, does, he doesn't think of time the way we do at all, and we need to think his way. Resources are unlimited. So that means we will find ourselves working against the Lord if we try to tightly control them. And I've seen people, I've even 
heard of some pastors who do this only because people have told me about them, but they are, they are known for tightly controlling their schedule and their time. And it seems noble because their reasoning is, if I tightly control my schedule, then the overwhelming demands on my time will never override my priorities of my you know, family or my children. But that is reasoning that comes from fear, not faith. It comes from the fear of lack of time, just like controlling money comes from the fear of lack of money. It is fear that always controls. It's, it's fear that hoards. It's always fear that's worried about supply. But when the Holy Spirit is allowed to direct your time and direct your allocation of money through faith, which means we spend in faith and reliance on his direction, it's a much lighter burden. Nothing will have lack, and everything will have the resources that it needs. Okay? He wants us to think in his unlimited mindset. So from here on out, there is only hearing his voice and following it. No formulas, no tight control of resources, because we are, con- we are connected to the God of unending supply. Okay? So that's the first foundational paradigm. In the kingdom, resources are abundant, not scarce. The second one is, in the kingdom, God places people in positions and callings, not man. So we know from the last several weeks of Greg speaking, there has been a spiritual regime change of principalities dismantled on the earth. And those principalities have ruled over a human element, making decisions for nations, that are also being dismantled. And as we begin to see the kingdom established on the earth, it will be the Lord raising up his people for them to take their places. And we know that the greatest positions in the kingdom of heaven are the ones that require the most uh, servanthood, the most, the strongest posture of humility, right? Because leaders in the kingdom aren't the ones that seem to have it all together or really know what's going on. Real leaders in the kingdom are the ones that that know they don't know what's going on, but they're just willing to walk forward in the faith and the not knowing. Just like real kingdom influencers, how the world describes influencers, are not those who have the biggest social media accounts, but they're the ones who actually carry the presence of God. So I just want to read another passage from Isaiah 32 that talks about this, and we'll start in verse 1. Look, a righteous king is coming. And honest princes will rule under him. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a parched land. Then everyone who has eyes will be able to see the truth, and everyone who has ears will be able to hear it. And then I'm just going to read verse 5 because it's refreshing. In that day, ungodly fools will not be heroes. Scoundrels will not be respected. That sounds nice, doesn't it? This is not what we've had on the earth, but this is God's dream. So God's dream for leadership in the kingdom is to lead by example, not coercion. Okay, we see that in 1 Peter 5.3. Paul says, for leaders to watch over the flock, don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. Unfortunately, the body of Christ has been under many leaders who lead by the force 
of influence to get people to take action or heavy persuasion instead of by example. Years ago, I sat under a pastor like this who didn't understand this, and he was an amazing speaker. He was very persuasive. He knew the word of God better than anyone I've ever seen, but he didn't live the example of the things that he taught. And eventually, my spirit just couldn't stay in the inconsistency of that. If he had understood the principle of leading by example, being what is important to the Lord, his example would have spoken a weight with a weight and a volume that persuasive words could never do. Because it is a heavy burden to try to convince people into relationship with the Lord. We were talking about this a little bit on Tuesday night when we were in our circle. Contrary to popular belief, it is not people who lead other people to the Lord. That's why Jesus said in John 12:32, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. It's Jesus who draws people. It's Jesus preparing and assigning people. It's a much lighter burden to let Jesus do what he does better than any of us could ever do. And it's not so it's not people who draw other people to Jesus. Now, people can teach those who want to hear. People can um, they can encourage and they can show love, but real leaders will follow what the Lord is already doing, right? So what the Lord said to me is that in his glorious church that he describes in Ephesians 5, the glorious church without spot and wrinkle and blemish, when the church comes to that level of maturity, every person will be led by only his voice, and no person will exert control or heavy influence upon any other person. All right, so the next paradigm shift kind of goes with this one, and, and it is the third one. In the kingdom, the body of Christ is a family, not a hierarchy. And we've always talked about this around here, but um, it's, it's an easier thing to talk about. It's a much harder thing to actually do. The Lord gave me a glimpse of this a couple weeks ago. We, we went away with our family for a week. And we are three children and their spouses and Lucas. And we had a great time. But I watched, amazed during the whole week, at how everyone so sweetly flowed with whatever Lucas needed. And there were, I mean, I remember at least one day like this. Maybe there were more. But there were days when we got up and we made plans. It was like, okay, yeah, we're going to do this. And we were getting ready to go. And then Lucas fell asleep early. And then it was like, oh, okay, well, Luke is asleep now. Now we can't go do that. It's going to be another hour and a half. And, but everyone just adjusted. No one got bent out of shape. Everybody was like, oh, okay, well, we'll just wait here until he wakes up, and then we'll go do it, you know. And I kind of thought, you know, I thought during the week maybe Lacey and John would want to go do something, you know, while Lucas took his nap or, you know, but it didn't really happen that way. They could have certainly, everyone had the freedom to do whatever they wanted at any time, but everybody wanted to be together, and being together was our fun. It wasn't really about the doing of the certain things, and no one was really consciously trying to do it. It just was happening organically out of the heart. One morning, uh, I'm going to use you guys as an example. One morning, Cole was up early giving Lucas breakfast, feeding Lucas, and he, 
he said to me, I feel so bad for Jenna because Lucas hasn't been sleeping well and she's been up with him a lot during the night. So I got up with him so she could sleep. And a couple hours went by and Jenna had a good nap and she came downstairs and Cole went to take a shower. And Jenna says to me, I feel so bad for Cole because he was up so early with Lucas all this time so I could sleep. And I, I didn't say anything to them, but I just thought, how cute is this? Like each one sacrificing for the other, but they didn't even see their own sacrifice. All they could see was the sacrifice the other one was making for them. And at the end of the week, Jeff and I were talking about it, and I just I felt the Lord smiling down on it like, this is how I want my whole bride to operate. Everyone preferring one another and everyone focused on what the most vulnerable need. With that, though, being a healthy family versus a dysfunctional family is not always easy, right? When you're a family and there's a misunderstanding, healthy families talk it out. It takes resolve not to leave when things get hard, and it takes transparency with each other to keep something from getting in the way of relationship. I've had my own children put me in my place at certain times when there was a misunderstanding of, how I handled something, and they were right to do it. It's one of those times when you're like, oh, I'm being humbled by my kids right now, but I am so proud of them, you know, at the same time. I'm thankful that they will do that, though, instead of letting something fester under the surface that needs to be talked out and just not addressing it. Because real unity always has a cost. Real unity comes from deep personal sanctification. And it works best when the people you are unifying with also have that same value for that sanctification. All right, we'll go to the fourth one, the fourth paradigm shift. Okay, love this one. In the kingdom, bodily perfection is the norm, not decay and not disease. About two and a half years ago, I had a real defining experience Uh, Nothing like this had ever happened before that, and nothing has happened since like this. But one night I was asleep, and I, I, I half woke up to the Lord speaking very clear sentences. And so I, I picked up my phone and started recording myself speaking what I was hearing. And this is what he said. Uh, just to give context, it was during a time when my father was dying of cancer, and so I was in like deep thought and prayer with the Lord about life, about death, about hospice, about, you know, these, these really difficult, deep issues. So the Lord said, in the acceptance of death process, a person has to go, has to choose to go against my very creation for them. I didn't create things to die. I intended for close fellowship all of one's life walking with me with an end on earth and a beginning in heaven that was to be void of trauma death stands in opposition to my intent my intention was that there was no break in fellowship no end to relationship no end of life and obviously no separation from me accepting death is surrender to the enemy Man has accepted separation from me and death as a way of life. 
To surrender to death is to surrender to something diametrically opposed to the very life that I am. My intention was for people to go from life to more life. This is exactly what my plan has always been, exactly what my adversary Satan has done to trick my creation, exactly what my creation, including my precious children, have accepted as the norm, and it was never intended to be like that. I did not create all of this for any separation. Relationship, constant togetherness, that is my plan. And I said, so Lord, literally after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the entire world has accepted the effects of the curse of aging and death when that was never your will. And millions who have died from what people would consider normal aging process did not understand what Jesus' blood really paid for. And he said, that is correct. Do you realize that aging is offensive? to the human spirit, just like death is offensive to the human spirit. We weren't created for either one. And our culture and the world tried to make us be okay with aging and death because we're just convinced it's inevitable and we have to, we have to be okay with it. You know, and they, they throw out these empty platitudes. You know, it's, age is just a number. It's all about how you feel inside. 50 is the new 30, you know, whatever. Whatever they say. And so people try to, we try to force ourselves to be okay with aging and death, but it doesn't work. They are both offensive to my spirit because they're offensive to the Holy Spirit. The blood of Jesus conquered sin and all of its effects, and he defeated death. So I'm not sure there are very many of us yet with faith to see the end of these things that we've been forced to accept. But I want to be clear. This is coming. Breakthrough on the earth in these things. In this life, here, on earth. Just believe. In the last year, as we get closer to this, my, whatever it's going to look like, I have no idea, but my spirit is more and more irritated. As time passes, I have less and less tolerance for the chase of health, the chase of youth, the chase of degeneration, and I I am thankful for dentists and eye doctors and chiropractors. I've seen them all recently. I'm thankful for their help, but we don't realize how much industry in the world is dedicated to managing decay. I was in Costco a few weeks ago, and I was standing near the um, pharmacy area, and it was like for 30 seconds the Lord just opened my eyes to see things all in a new way, like, I guess, from his viewpoint. And so I, I started scanning everything around me, and I kind of did this twirl, and I just thought, oh, my goodness, the amount of products to keep our bodies working. There's, like, supplements for allergies and supplements, you know, collagen supplements for skin and melatonin for sleep and nutrients we don't get in our food and, you know, supplements for joint health and digestive aids and people just examining these products, reading labels, desperate for help. And I have this holy rage building inside against this stuff. Carson and I were recently at, um, we were in Philadelphia at one of the big Penn Medicine buildings. 
And we were walking through just trying to find where we were going, and this sign just stopped me in my tracks. It just bothered me so badly. I was going to, I took a picture of it. I was going to put it up, but I don't even want to give it the time of day. I don't want to give it even the exposure. But it was this very pretty tall sign to let women know that as they go through their cancer surgeries and have body parts removed and endure the treatments, there's a boutique on the next floor up where they can purchase garments and wigs to make them feel more confident. And I just felt this rage. Please understand, there is nothing wrong with feeling confident. And I want to be careful because I know that every single one of us here know, knows or loves someone who has been diagnosed with cancer. We have a high rate of cancer in this area, and oh, that is going to change too. And I'm not saying this from an unfeeling place. Okay, I had to watch my own father's body be eaten away by cancer, where we could literally see the black pockets taking over his body. And my own sons have had intestinal surgeries where we bought things and we did things to help them feel more confident and not, you know, keep the embarrassment factor as low as we could. But the holy rage is because it was never supposed to be like this in the first place. And we shouldn't even have to think about ways to cope with the emotional pain side of things with these horrific treatments and surgeries. And it isn't possible to make that be okay in us unless we are choosing against what the Lord meant for our very creation. In the kingdom, the paradigm of aging and breakdown on the earth will be dismantled. For those who choose the Lord, something else will be available. God never wanted this. He wanted us to go from life to more life. What if we had a future where we don't ever age? How does that change everything? What if stamina never decreases? What if sight and wisdom and discernment increases instead of dementia? What if generations increase in health and strength instead of declining into patterns of disease? I'm saying what if to get your minds whirling, but I already know it's coming. And please don't listen to me right now and respond in your head with, oh, I hope that could be possible. That would be amazing if that were true. No, it's true. He wants us to believe. And I suggest we will see this in bodies first because of Romans 8.21. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. It's God's children first, then creation, in that order, as this verse indicates. And I understand, if I was speaking this anywhere else, I might just be laughed off the stage. But I don't care. And I say this with no pride, okay? The Lord knows. If I am right, and I am, the kingdom of God is about to be here among us. And I'm going to say one more thing while I'm on a roll. Um, I was cleaning up my kitchen a couple weeks ago. I was just doing the dishes. I wasn't thinking about anything. And out of the blue, I hear the Lord say, in all of the land, no women were as lovely as the daughters of Job. And I recognized it from the book of Job, the description of Job's restoration. And I just had to laugh. There's vindication coming, and it includes beauty. 
Like beauty is coming for God's people. And I thought, well, okay. I mean, I wasn't really pining away to be beautiful because to have the Lord is already to have everything. But if he's offering beauty because it's always his heart that beauty comes from ashes like the restoration of Job's family, then I'm not going to say no, right? All right. Last paradigm shift. This one is actually the most important one of the day, okay? All the other ones hinge on this one. In the kingdom, the river of life carries us. We don't carry it. And this is another one of those backwards teachings I heard all my life growing up in church. We're taught that we carry the Holy Spirit. And it's not that that is untrue, but I'm talking again about an improved paradigm shift here. It's supposed to be that the Holy Spirit carries us and works through us. And that is the actual example of Jesus. If we think about it in terms of water, we can carry a glass of water, but it's a small amount of water, right? Eventually, water, if you keep adding to it, it becomes too heavy to carry around. There's this water park in Virginia that has this ride that I like that we went to years ago. And it's one of those lazy river rides, you know, but this one isn't lazy. It's actually fast. It's got a fast-moving current to it. And so you can get in and you can try to stand against the current and it's fun for a little bit, but it's strong. So it gets tiring and you get tired out doing that. Just follow me with this metaphor for a minute. There is a choice on this ride because it's not one of those rides you wait in line for. It's one of the ones you just get in or get out as you decide you want to. If you watch people on this ride, the continual mental decisions are being made. Some people think it's funny to get to sit on a floaty raft thing and hold on to the side, you know, as the water's trying to take them. But that causes a whole bunch of people to come get jammed up behind them. And so you can hold on for a little while, but not for long because it's just you, you can't resist it. So eventually you make a choice on this ride to let go of control and let the river take you or you decide to bail. And you jump out and go do something else. To choose to stay in the river of life is to choose to engage in the absolutely most exhilarating plan our creator made for us. But you don't get to know what the plan is until you're in the river letting go first. And I don't know about you. I I want the maximum life purpose that God had for me. Nothing else is going to be as fulfilling as that. The river of life is too big, it's too powerful and too abundant to carry. No, he carries us and flows through us. I am only a channel because the Lord invites us to participate. It's a very hands-off mindset we need to have because he won't be contained. And the whole point of the river of life analogy is for the bride of Christ to forsake self-leadership. We let go of everything to be carried, unified with others who are also being carried. But each person individually has to surrender and believe. So if, if surrender and faith is unattractive to a person, they won't get fully in. And that is the picture of the lukewarm church. 
They will choose to jump out of the river or they'll be spit out because staying ankle deep or waist deep isn't enough. A choice to jump out of the river is to choose the side of cold by default. But to stay immersed in the river, it first, at first feels risky, but it's actually the greatest place of protection and security, especially in a time of world judgment. And here's the thing. We stay vigilant in relationship, constantly surrendering, constantly trusting, constantly being led and carried, following his lead. Forever. There is no end to it. This, this one thing is the only status to attain to. This is the whole point of everything. See, the world puts us in this drive for attaining and for accomplishment from the time that we're born. And it's sneaky because there is such a thing as growth and development of children, and there is such a thing as spiritual maturity. But then there's this other whole side of what society and culture put on us. And it starts with, there's first preschool, and then you have grades 1 through 12. And then you, there's all this pressure on a person suddenly at age 17 or 18 for them to know what they want to do and have their life mapped out. And I've always resisted that. And, And just think about this for a minute because it's graduation season. Every young person graduating feels the pressure of all the questions about what they want to do. And I just always thought, how is a person supposed to map their life out when relationally with God we are just to take one step at a time as he leads? I feel like, like I'm 51 and I'm just now figuring out what my life is supposed to be about. And that's because I don't, now that he leads and I don't follow any mapping of the world. But there's this continual push, always, for more training, the next accomplishment, you know, surely we'll get help in the next counseling section or, or when we see the next health practitioner or when we do the next treatment or we're working towards the next sales goal or the next income bracket and the next sports game and the next until we get to the championship. This stuff happens in churches, too, when it becomes about getting the numbers to increase and attendance and building campaigns for the next project and the next satellite location. And there's just this drive for more and more and more. And these things in themselves are not wrong. It's just that they can either be led by the Lord or they can be driven by man. What if it's all been a scam? What would the world look like if he carried us and lived through us? What if we had no other goal? I'm not saying things won't get done. I'm saying the right things and the right timing with the right provision would get done. A few years ago, I was in a store and the Lord told me to buy this little framed sign. I didn't want to buy the sign. I was like, and the Lord's like, buy the sign. So I was like, I brought it today to show you. Here's what it says. He's like, you buy that sign. This is what it says. You are exactly where you need to be. So I put it up on the wall next to my bed, and for about a year, did I do something? 
Okay. For about a year, this sign grated on my nerves. Because the Lord was forcing in his gentle way for me to believe that I was where I needed to be. Now, and I'm not talking about physically. I'm talking about spiritually. The problem was I didn't want to be where I was. I wanted to be somewhere else in my mind that seemed better in my relationship with the Lord. But it was something I already had. He was trying to get me to believe. And so it was this exercise of the Lord breaking this paradigm inside me of always having to feel like I was, you know, I needed to get somewhere or be in a different place or waiting for something. But now I get it. What if we stop trying to attain to any place except that continuous state with vigilant resolve? Never to jump out of the river, seeking something else or trying to get to some mystical place that we aren't right now. This is how Eve was deceived. She heard another voice telling her she needed something that she already had. She already had wisdom. She was connected perfectly to the God of wisdom. The Father is looking for people who will be just so happily content to exist with him, to be with him in never-ending choice and re-choice over and over again of love and trust and surrender. Isn't that what marriage is? Is it not the picture of marriage, the idea of a lifetime commitment of consistently re-choosing the person that you chose. Like, are we not his bride? And in that relationship, things will get accomplished, and his plans will come forth, and we may even be busy with them, but those are not the focus. When being with him continuously is enough, His plans all automatically happen through whoever is willing to throw away any thoughts of needing to ascend out of the river. And this is an important revelation to get. I call it something in my personal talking with the Lord. I call it the eternal honeymoon. This is all the father wanted in the beginning. It was the whole reason for creating us in the first place. It was not so that we could accomplish. It was so that we could enjoy him. This eternal honeymoon posture with the Father is the greatest achievement, the single greatest achievement of the Christian life. It is the only thing to attain to. I remember after uh, Jeff and I got married, we, we had a low-budget honeymoon And I remember after all the planning, after all the buildup and and the wedding and then taking this little trip, and we were on our way home, and I remember this feeling of like, oh, we have to go back to normal life now? It's probably like uh, Waldo and Anissa are going to feel tomorrow. We've got to go back to normal life. We have to go back to jobs? Like, oh, seriously? You know, and it was this feeling of like, well, you just have to because this is what life is, and it just really can't be that good all the time. What if our marriage to the Father as his bride, what if it is supposed to be that good all the time? 
What if our only job was to focus on enjoying him every day? Never going back to the mundane life of toil and effort. Things getting done, yes, but out of that continual, never-ending honeymoon focus. And I'm not talking about some kind of feel-good situation here. I'm talking about participating in the hard work of faith until we are so connected with him that in our abiding, there is much getting accomplished but without toil, where the ground isn't cursed and the burden is light. This isn't something that just happens to you. It's something that we overcome in faith as we allow our minds to be renewed. This is the status of the kingdom, the never-ending honeymoon. This is how the kingdom moves forward. There's so much coming. From here on out, the kingdom will only grow and expand. Generations will become free and reproduce in love and in health. And truth will set people free. And God's ideas for economies and businesses will cause flourishing that we haven't seen. His cures for diseases will flow. His art and entertainment will confirm the truth instead of lies. His ideas on farming, on agriculture, will nourish again as creation is set free from bondage to decay. Unity in the midst of diversity will be the norm, which means denominations will be destroyed. They were never God's idea in the first place. God's dream is one flock with one shepherd. And for us, this is permanent. The whole earth and the nations under new ownership. I just want to close by reading parts of Isaiah 54. This is also a scripture describing God's dreams. So I'm just going to read these verses to close this part out. And then I would like to play a song. And then uh, Jeff will close us in prayer. I love this so much. This is the Lord speaking to his bride. Okay, Isaiah 54, verse 1. Sing, O childless woman, you you who have never given birth. Break into loud and joyful song, O Jerusalem, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband, says the Lord. Enlarge your house, build an addition, spread out your home, and spare no expense, for you will soon be bursting at the seams. Your descendants will occupy other nations and resettle the ruined cities. Fear not, you will no longer live in shame. Don't be afraid, there is no more disgrace for you. You will no longer remember the shame of your youth and the sorrows of your widowhood. For your creator will be your husband. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. He is your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you back from your grief, as though you were a young wife abandoned by her husband, says your God. And I'll skip down to verse 13. I will teach all your children, and they will enjoy great peace. You will be secure under a government that is just and fair. Your enemies will stay far away. 
You will live in peace, and terror will not come near. If any nation comes to fight you, it is not because I sent them. Whoever attacks you will go down in defeat. And verse 17, in that coming day, no weapon turned against you will succeed. You will silence every voice raised up to accuse you. These benefits are enjoyed by the servants of the Lord. Their vindication will come from me. So you guys can go ahead and play that song. And then we'll close in prayer.
Jesus, thank you so much for truth. Thank you for being the great Father. Thank you that your kingdom is here on earth as it was in heaven and is in heaven. Thank you for the truth that was shared today. It's a privilege to be one of your kids. Thank you for all the moms today. Thank you for that incredible role that you have placed them in, the glory of it, the tenacity in it. I just praise you for all those that are represented here today. And we just give you the rest of this day and the rest of this week. It's yours. We have great expectation for it. In your precious name, amen.